In my shaggy hair days, yes, I did have shaggy hair, uh, I love to go whitewater rafting. Uh, there's just an exciting, uh, fun atmosphere about battling the rapids with a group of people that you enjoy. And so one time, I went with my cousins and some other friends and rafting trip down the upper Clackamas. And we had two experienced river guides with us, one of them being my cousin. And so he was the one that was going to head up the trip. And so it was also early spring, so if you don't know that time of year, is really cold water. So we all wore dry suits um, just to try and combat the cold. So I was sitting basically at the rear of the raft on the left side, right next to the guide, and my cousin. And so we start going down, having fun, and doing our rapid, you know, just going down and sitting, just giving us commands to get down the river and... Uh, then he warns us of this particular rapid that we're coming up to. It has potential danger because it's a whirlpool or, or eddy, uh, which in essence, if you get trapped in it, you'll get sucked down to the bottom of the river and be pinned. So you don't want to fall in. And so he warns us as we're approaching this, uh, it's considered a class four rapid. Um, but if you, you stay river right, you'll, you'll skate right by it and not even touch it. Well, as we're, oh, another detail. If you do fall in, there is a rope ladder that you have seconds to grab to try and pull yourself out. So if you miss it, you're going to visit the bottom of the river. Um, so we're, we're staying river right, and the thing is there was a fallen tree that was off on the river right too, so we had to go a little bit more left, a little bit closer to the rapid, and we almost make it past the river or the rapid, and then the tail of the boat gets caught in, and literally, it was like being in a car accident where you got T-boned, and you just start spinning, and so we start spinning towards the rapid, and I'm sitting where all the momentum is kicking us, and I start kind of doing hands in the air, paddles gone, and I'm like, I am going into this rapid, and then I realize, wait, I'm not going into the rapid, What's, I'm literally in midair, what's going on? Well, and I look back, like I literally had the memories of looking back, and I see my cousin reacted so quick that he was able to grab my leg and just pin me into the boat, and I'm like just hanging out there, dangling, and everyone's trying to like paddle out of the rapid, and then the other uh, experienced guy was sitting next to him, and he jumps across, reaches over, grabs me by my life jacket, and then throws me back into the boat, and then we make it out, and... We all laugh about it. It was fun. <laughs> so these guys literally saved my life. Literally. They interceded on my behalf. There's nothing I could do to get out of this. Nothing at all. And so because of this, uh, it relates to what we're going to talk about today, intercession. We see this in Deuteronomy. Uh, we see that the Israelites are in need of an intercessor. And it's going to help us see our need for an intercessor. You might ask, what do, I need, what do I need intercession from? I mean, it's a good question. And I'm glad you asked it because that's where we're going to go today. And that's my first point. So our sinfulness requires an intercessor. That's the first point. Our sinfulness requires an intercessor. So in Deuteronomy 9, we heard Moses remind the people of the rebellion by worshiping the golden calf. That's what 
Keegan had read with for us. And so I want to look at this story in a little bit more detail in order to understand the context. So turn to Exodus 32. We're going to look at Exodus 32's uh, version of the story. So here we find Moses at Mount Sinai. He's on top. They're receiving the two tablets of of stone uh, with the covenant between God and his people. Uh, And they're written by the finger of God. And as Moses was away up on top of the mountain, the people grew impatient and decided to move on. So they go to Aaron, who is the priest and Moses' brother, and ask him to make gods to go before them. And here is Aaron's response here in verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden cap. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now this is obviously serious rebellion against God and against Moses. In fact, it's very similar to the God worship that you would find in Egypt, where they were slaves. And it's also similar to the people that they're going to bring judgment on in Canaan. They're very much looking like how the world worships gods. And not, they, didn't, they didn't just fashion their own god, but they, the connotation is that they're committing sexual immorality in the midst of this uh, with each other to worship this God. Now, I'm willing to concede that maybe that the word their play could just be meaning they're singing and dancing. But regardless, it was worship of a God that let them do whatever they wanted. And they created lies to claim that this is the God that freed them from Egypt. This is obscene and evil what they're doing. Now, if you were God or even Moses, how would you respond to this? Yeah, I would be furious, livid, furious if I saw this happening. If you're not feeling that in this text, let me paint another picture for you to help you latch on to that feeling. Let's say you're married and you come home and find your spouse in bed with someone else, and then your spouse tells you to your face that you're not their spouse, but this adulterer is. Would you be angry now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is how God and Moses are feeling in this situation. It is very heavy. So let's look at Moses' reaction Uh, First, we're going to jump down to verse 15 there in Exodus 32. 
Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, Moses, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Everyone take a breath. Heavy. So Moses knew God was angry with the people. And he was angry too. Uh, I want to point out this quick little thing. Not every single Israelite was partaking in this idol worship. I mean, Joshua appears to have no clue what's going on. And, but just because Moses and Joshua weren't a part of it, they were still commanded by Yahweh to deal with it. So first, Moses breaks the two stone tablets of the covenant. Now, this is important to notice, not because it answers the question of who broke all Ten Commandments at the same time, but it was a demonstration that the covenant was broken by the people. The covenant was broken by the people. Then Moses confronted the sin of the people. And that calf is ground up and put into the drinking water, which is, has interesting implications. You got the people that are drinking this water now are kind of showing that this 
gold god was now just excrement and worthless. If you need to look up excrement, you can do that before lunch or after lunch. So Moses stated the covenant was broken by smashing these stone tablets. Uh, He stopped the sinful worship and stated that this God, this gold calf, is not Yahweh. Moses then rebukes Aaron and gives opportunity for repentance. So all the Levites, they repent, and now this section is what's hard to swallow. But remember how old covenants worked. So if you you have an agreement, and you would cut animals in half and then walk through them with each other um, with the one that you cut covenant with. And if you broke that covenant, you were agreeing that you would end up like these animals that you had just cut in half. So Moses is dealing with idolatry in the camp, a broken covenant. And he had a command from Yahweh that tells uh, command from Yahweh that tells him what to do with the people there. That was back in verse 27. So remember the population of of the Israelites at this time. It's probably in the millions, right? And 3,000 men were killed, which, yeah, that's pretty terrible. But I want you to think, why was it only 3,000 and not a million? What went on there? Well, the implication here is that the, the Levites were charged to go through the camp and determine who was going to repent back to Yahweh or who was going to choose to stay in this idolatry. So 3,000 chose idolatry over Yahweh. They chose that and died for their unrepentant sin. Now, this would have still been agonizing as these were people that they knew. I want to clarify that I don't, I don't see God giving us that same command to go and kill people as he did with Moses, but I would suggest that there's a truth we need to glean from this. And that's extreme measures need to be taken when dealing with idolatry or sin in our midst. Extreme measures. And it's not a joking matter. Sin must be called out, and hopefully the one in sin repents back to Christ. But those who choose to stay in the idolatry or choose to stay in sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.9. We also see in Galatians 5, Paul states idolatry is a work of the flesh and that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So I hope this section of Scripture allows us to see the heaviness of sin. How it separates us from God and from his people. See, sin is not to be brushed aside, but needs to be dealt with because it will lead to death and destruction. Now, we've been given an opportunity, just as the Israelites were given, 
It was by the gracious action of Moses on behalf of the Israelites, and for us, the gracious action of Christ. Now, let's look at the next thing that Moses does. He intercedes on behalf of the people. He actually already started the intercession when God told Moses what the people were doing, and that God was ready to bring destruction upon the people. And we are going to look at how Moses intercedes, and as we do so, I want to us to know this point. By God's grace, he provided an intercessor. The second point, by God's grace, he provided an intercessor. So we see Moses start interceding back in Exodus 32, 9. I'll read that. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So this is also the the intercession that Moses refers back to in Deuteronomy 9.26. But I want us to help us understand the English translation here. Uh, So God knew the people are stiff-necked, and it's true. This isn't the first time that they have shown rebellion towards God since leaving Egypt. And it won't be the last time either. Now, God says something peculiar in this. He he says to Moses, therefore let me alone. Which we could take to mean, oh Moses, just just get out of here. I don't want you around here. I'm going to just burn them to hell right now. I'm going to pour out my wrath on them. But is God really commanding Moses to leave? Or is Moses to do something else? See, Moses doesn't really have the power to stop God. But why would God even need to say this phrase, let me alone? So this could be a a rhetorical command and that God is saying to Moses, here's what I'm going going to do if you don't intervene. If you don't talk to me about this. So whether God was allowing opportunity for Moses to intercede or, or maybe God or Moses just took liberty uh, to speak, either way, the anger of God is justified in this. I mean, sin ends in death. It is serious, as we've already discussed. And so God has said that he will destroy this people. And he also kind of gave an offer to Moses hey, and I'll rebuild the nation through you in order to keep his promise to Abraham. But 
Moses didn't take that offer. He could have given into this offer, and you can even say that this was a test on uh, Moses' character, but I don't know if we can say it's for sure a test, as God is serious in the statement to pour out wrath on the people. What we do know for sure is that Moses does intercede on behalf of the people, and be- even before seeing what the people are up to, he's already interceding on their behalf. And he does this by appealing to God's heart to keep his promise to Abraham and for his name's sake. I mean, what would the nations think if God took the people he freed and then destroyed them in the wilderness? I mean, they would think this is not a God that anyone should follow. But notice that Moses doesn't argue that God's wrath is wrong. He doesn't argue against that because he knows it's justified. So Moses has seen how the people have been rebellious before this event, and he's also been upset with the people. Yet Moses still intercedes despite what the people deserved. And with this intercessory plea from Moses, God decides to relent his justified wrath. Now what's interesting about this is that Yahweh not only listened to the intercession of Moses, but he actually provided Moses to be an intercessor of the people. I mean, we can get hung up on the idea that God relented, but missed the truth that God actually put Moses in this place to even intercede. To God in his wisdom knew the people would sin against him. He knew that they would need an intercessor to keep relationship between the people and God. And he has been growing and guiding Moses to become an intercessor for the people. And let's look back at Exodus uh, chapter 3, 9 through 10. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." is back when Moses is called at the burning bush by Yahweh. And Yahweh commands Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out of their slavery. See, God already started the intercession for his people. He started it through Moses, back there at the burning bush. And has poured out grace upon grace on his people. And here we see grace is now shown through Moses. We should all be able to relate to the story of, of sin and rebellion and God's intervention through an intercessor. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all broken covenant relationship with God. And we should be experiencing the wrath of God right now. But, this is the good news, but God gave us an opportunity for mercy in the midst of his justice. Gave us an opportunity in which he would show grace. That's where he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to to intercede on our behalf. He died, resurrected, and ascended. And his death paid the debt of our sin against God. 
His resurrection defeated sin and death, allowing those of us who believe to put our faith in Christ to have new life. When Christ ascended, he goes before the Father and continues to pray for us, to intercede on our behalf. And he sent his Holy Spirit to come and guide us in a sanctified life. So that now we, we are walking from that gift of salvation, walking back into covenant relationship with our holy God, who has shown us much grace. So we've looked at the prayer of Moses here in Exodus 32, 11. Now let's look at a prayer from Jesus. Turn to John 17. So this is known as the high priestly prayer. We're going to look at a couple pieces of this to understand what the goal of Jesus' intercession is. So let's start there in, in verses 6 through 9. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So notice here, Jesus is giving glory to the Father who gave these people to his son. And we as people have been given salvation and we're taken from out of the world and brought into the hands of our Savior Christ. And it's for us that Christ is praying. Now, let's jump down to verse 17. Jesus then says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Here we see an intercession for us to be sanctified from Christ because Christ knows we are still in the world and we're still prone to stumble. Finally, let's look at verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Christ is leading us in his intercessory prayer to be fully unified with Yahweh. To have a covenant relationship where we love God and we know his love for us. And this love is to be used as a witness to the world of God's greatness. It's interesting how Moses was interceding for similar things. 
he was in the midst of delivering the Ten Commandments on stone tablets, which points to the covenant relationship. He prayed that God would relent his wrath, so that the world would see his steadfast love for his people. And we can see a correlation between Moses and Christ. But there is a great difference that we can see explained in Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we see Moses was a servant here. But Christ is the son in the house of God, which tells us that Christ has the greater authority and power. And we see this in comparing the two in their ability to intercede. Moses spoke words and fasted to intercede and was even willing to give his life for the people. Yet, even if Moses gave his life, it wouldn't be enough to atone for the sin of the people. It wouldn't be enough. Christ gave his life. And being sinless, he was a perfect sacrifice that has the power to atone for all the sin in the world. Christ is greater than Moses. And it's necessary for us to rely upon Christ's intercession. Brothers and sisters, continue to put your faith in Christ. Continue to put your faith in Christ. Those of you who are in sin, repent to Christ. He intercedes on your behalf. He wants you to be in his house. So we also saw in Christ's high priestly prayer that he is leading us to be in the covenant relationship with God. And this explains a very important role of an intercessor, which is an intercessor restores covenant. My third point, an intercessor restores covenant. So we see this back in our uh, original text in Deuteronomy 10. Turn back there. I look at verses 1 through 5. At this, at the time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke and you shall put them in the ark. 
So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. So Moses broke the original two tablets of stone, but here Yahweh has him fashioned new ones. And then the Lord writes on them uh, as, and has Moses store them in the Ark of the Covenant. Do we see here a literal action of restoring covenant? And the, see, the people broke this covenant by their actions. And then Moses interceded before God so that he did not pour his wrath on this rebellious people. See, God relented and now restores the broken covenant. See, the Ten Commandments were again written to remind God, or remind God's people of the covenant. And remember that the Ten Commandments are not just legal rules, but they're commands on keeping righteous relationship with God and people. It is a great picture of God's grace to restore this covenant relationship with his people. And as we learned from Hebrews 3, we know that while Moses was a devout servant of God and interceded on behalf of the people, it was still nothing compared to Christ. See, with Christ, we see an intercessor who gives his life to restore covenant relationship with anyone who will believe and follow him. The death and resurrection of Christ brings forgiveness and a new identity to the one who puts their faith in Christ. Knowing we have sinned, my plea for us today is to know that Christ interceded on our behalf and that we are his. He didn't intercede so that we stay stuck in sin and fall away. Fall away from God. Now, let me point something else back in Hebrews 3. That'll help us understand this. Verses 12 to 15. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So this calls us to stand firm in our faith in Christ, to not disobey, but to give our allegiance to him. And it also points us to exhort one another. Now, what do you guys think exhort means? Encourage, yeah. So depending on our experience, we can, we can see this as like comforting someone, that encouragement, or maybe even lighting a fire under someone to get them to go a certain direction. But both can be wor- uh, true of this word exhort. And uh, the meaning is more accurately to, to call someone to something. And so in the Bible, exhorting is to call us back to Christ. How often... Uh, Back in that verse in Hebrews, does the author tell us to exhort each other? 
How often? The, the verse that we just read, it's right up there. Every day. Okay. Every day because Christ loves us and has commanded us to love each other. So my application for you is to realize that part of intercession is that we go to each other and exhort one another to follow Christ. This is part of interceding for, on each other's behalf. Here are some examples of what that can look like. So when we, we gather, we pray and re- read the Word. We put Christ as the forefront. Um, we can come together and give thanks and praise to our God, who is faithful. Um, when we have family worship uh, in our homes, uh, it can, we can extend it to not just our kids, but to other brothers and sisters that are in Christ. Um, when someone's hurting, we can tell them of our experience of hurt and how Christ brought us through it to bring that encouragement. And we can also have direct conversations to warn against sin that we see in someone's life, that we see in a brother or sister, and help them be pointed back to Christ, who desires us to be free from that bondage of sin. We can also help each other process how to prioritize Christ in our life. Um, Another big one is resolve conflict between ourselves, between brothers and sisters here. And as we do that, reminding each other of the intercession Christ has already provided on our behalf through that reconciliation between us and God. So these are just some practical ways that we can intercede and exhort each other daily. Now, the other part of how we can intercede is prayer for each other. This, we saw this example by Moses and Jesus. And I believe it is a practice that we all need to grow in in this church. We need to grow in our prayer for one another. Part of the struggle I believe we have with prayer is do we believe it's effective? If you don't think something's working, why do it? So let me point you to James here, James 5, 16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now part of effective prayer is that it is part of the life of a person walking in right relationship with God. God hears the prayer, and he's a good father who gives generously. But also, prayer helps us take on God's heart. Now, regarding intercessory prayer, when we are thinking of others, guess what? You're not thinking of yourself. That very act of of the prayer is having an effect on how we care for each other. And even if God did nothing else with that prayer that you prayed on someone's behalf, it is worth it. It is effective in having our hearts aligned with God. Now, when we, when we see God answer in our intercessory prayers, 
and we are reminded of his contraconditional love for us. And we see his generosity and mercy, and we're reminded to give God praise and thanksgiving for his goodness. Now, if you need help with who to pray for, let me give you some tools. So if you're a member here at this church, we have a member directory. You literally have everybody's name. You can go through and pray for them. Um, if you're part of a community group, pay attention to who's in your community group and pray for them. Get to know them, understand what's going on in their lives so you can pray more accurately for them. Um, another thing, like if you don't even know the person, you haven't had a chance to really get to know them, um, you can still pray for them using the Lord's Prayer as a guide. You can find in Matthew 6, 9. So I want us to be a people of prayer. Because this is something that the Bible talks about a lot. And Paul urges this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 5. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christ is our one mediator, our one true intercessor. And he wants us to be in covenant relationship with him. He is the one that we should be looking to to please with our lives. Following his lead and how he lived his life to please God the Father. This is what Christ's intercession brings his people toward. It is restoring righteous relationship with God and righteous relationship with each other. But we have seen in Deuteronomy and Exodus how Moses has reminded the people of their past sinfulness. And we too should remember the darkness that we were in before Christ. And it helps us to remember we can't escape the darkness of our sin and rebellion on our own. Just like when I almost fell into the deadly river rapid, we need and have an intercessor who is at this very moment interceding on our behalf. Just as the Israelites had Moses, we have Jesus Christ, who continually intercedes for us. Christ has brought us into his kingdom, where we learn to be his citizens. We have been adopted into his family, where we learn to be his children. Let's walk in that identity that has been given to us. Let's follow the commands of Christ to love God and love each other. Let's become a people that knows how to exhort each other, to intercede in prayer so that we continue in our obedience to Christ our Lord.